Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com On August 22, 1996, 22-year-old Debbie Dorian was discovered bound, gagged, raped, and murdered in her apartment. Her father was the one to have made the horrific discovery, and to this day, Her killer has never been apprehended, and her case has gone cold. However, he did leave behind his genetic marker, his DNA. Though he would lay dormant for nearly three years, he did strike again, raping at least seven more women in the Visalia, California area, linked to all of those crimes through his DNA. But Debbie would be the only known victim to have died at his hands. With DNA technology having advanced by leaps and bounds over the last 22 years, as well as some recent, very high-profile cases in California that had long been cold being solved, it is our hope to shine a light on Debbie's case, to bring this killer and rapist to justice, and a measure of closure for Debbie's family and friends who have waited much too long for answers. With the blessings of Debbie's mother, Sarah, and the help and guidance of her best friend, Katina, California Dreaming and Orbital Jigsaw are bringing you their story in episode 64, The Unsolved Murder of Debbie Dorian. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, 
I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. Hello, and welcome to Red Run Blonde. Before I get into this week's case, I have some pretty exciting news. I just guested on another podcast, which we'll be posting pretty soon. I've talked before about how much I love and appreciate the podcast community. Other hosts are so supportive and giving. And one of these podcasters is Justin, the host of the podcast Mysterious Circumstances. I've been a fan of his for quite some time now. And if you haven't listened, check it out. I would describe his podcast as true crime slash history. He did several Old West episodes that I particularly loved, especially the ones about Jesse James. And Justin is a total badass. This podcast is chock full of information. They're extremely well researched. And Justin is just fun as hell to listen to. We talked about how we should do an episode together, and then it actually happened. So needless to say, I was on cloud nine. Imagine getting to work with someone whose work you absolutely love. We just recorded the other day, and the case we covered was absolutely insane. At the beginning of my research, I felt one particular way, and then by the end of my research, I did a complete turnaround on my opinion. It's a true crime story that quickly delves into the world of conspiracy. Now, I love conspiracy theories, but I rarely buy into them. So without saying too much more, this will knock your socks off. He'll be posting it soon, so I'll keep everyone updated. In the meantime, check out Mysterious Circumstances if you haven't already. And as if this guy isn't busy enough, he has another podcast that's called Rev96. It's all creepypasta stories, and it's relatively new, I think around five episodes now. But definitely check him out. Like I said, I'm a big fan. I listen to a lot of different podcasts, but I don't always subscribe or regularly listen to that many. Mysterious Circumstances is on my subscribe list. That tells you how good it is. I was so thrilled to be part of something that I listen to and love. So thank you so much, Justin. I'll post like crazy when he drops the episode. Now to this week's case. If you listened to last week's show about Lobster Boy, Grady Stiles, you might have noticed that it was the first time I covered someone who was murdered that wasn't that great of a human being. He was a very abusive man, so it made it hard to be sympathetic to his death. There was also some debate as to whether or not his family was in the wrong and possibly not so great themselves. I kind of continue in that same vein this week. This case involves a debatably sketchy family who may or may not have been responsible for the death of their own child. They definitely turned a blind eye to some very awful behavior. The case was suggested to me by my coworker, Rachel. Not being originally from the state of Pennsylvania, I missed a lot of the cases that hit the headlines here. When she asked me if I ever heard the case, I hadn't. And then when she told me the story, I knew I had to cover it. It's truly shocking. And I'd like to tell it in a very similar fashion to how she told it to me, because I think it'll have more impact that way. From 1998 
to 2001, Marsha Bright was sexually abused by a family friend, a guy named Charles Kolschok. What's shocking is that this was possibly condoned by her immediate family. She was close to 10 at the time it began, and he was in his 30s. It's reported that the family accepted gifts from him in exchange for spending time with Marsha. The story then quickly turns worse, resulting in more molestation and then murder. This week, I'll talk about the murder of Annette Bright. So, obvious trigger warning here, I'll discuss molestation and the murder of a child. And not to bring up the news, but this past week's events in the news made me really see things in a different light. Thousands of women have come forward saying that they've been victims of sexual assault. I never realized how just the mention of another woman's assault may bring up memories for those who have been assaulted themselves. So from now on, I'll try to give warnings for my episodes, which contain details like that. This all takes place in Manesson, a city in Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania. Their population is just a little over 7,000, and it's roughly 45 minutes outside the city of Pittsburgh. It's part of what's called the Mon Valley. It's a Rust Belt area dependent on the steel industry. Now, back in the 40s, the population was around 20,000. That's a big difference from 7,000. So I think you can see how the decline of steel production has greatly impacted this area. When you just drive through these areas that were once thriving, it's pretty depressing. You see all these old storefronts, and they're still there, but now they're occupied by secondhand stores or they're just empty. It's kind of like driving through a ghost town. I haven't been to this particular area, but I've driven through ones like it. A lot of times I say it looks like The Walking Dead could be filmed there, if that gives you any idea of what that would be like. But the communities try to make the best of it. Many times, this builds strong character. And on the other hand, sometimes it breaks people down. The steel mills started laying off and closing in the late 60s. And that trend continued heavily into the 80s. In 2013, the mayor of Manesson revealed that the city had at least $8 million in long-term debt which required the city to budget $400,000 a year of its $4 million budgets to payments on its debt. The average income in the city is only around $26,000, and the per capita income for the city is around $16,000. And around 11.5% of families were well below the poverty line. It's a struggling place. It's not doing so well. But that's the reality of many places in the surrounding Pittsburgh area. These once thriving areas, dependent on steel production, have had to find other ways to get by. And these are working class families. Many don't have college educations or ways to better themselves. And just on an interesting side note, Manesson is the hometown of Oscar winner Francis McDormand and famed special effects makeup artist Tom Savini. So I think you get a good idea of what living in an area like this must be. There's not much opportunity for growth. Now that I've painted that picture for you, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Bright family. 
So just to let you know, I got a good bit of my information from an article on thisishorror.uk and some old Pittsburgh Post-Gazette articles that were forwarded to me by my friend Rachel. John Bright served in the U.S. Navy in California in the late 80s. John was assigned to the aircraft carrier USS Kitty Hawk, and his active duty was from 1989 to April of 1997 when he was discharged from active duty. John Bright lived in San Diego with his wife Annette May and their baby Marcia. At the time, there was another child in the home named Julie, and she was from a previous relationship John had had with another woman. There were complaints to child services, and both those children were removed from the home for a very short time. This all occurred in 1994 when Annette was pregnant with her next child, also named Annette. According to John, Julie had just fallen down some steps, but her bruises were noticed at school, and this is when the reports were filed. According to others, John beat the kids, his weapon of choice being a belt. Julie, the girl from the other relationship, never returned to the bright home, but sadly, Marcia was sent back. So whether John reformed or whether there was just a push to keep the family together isn't clear. San Diego County Children's Services said it was prevented from discussing the case because of state law. Between 1992 and 1996, Child Services had 15 abuse complaints lodged against the parents. And once again, we don't know the details because of the law in California, but we can assume it wasn't good. Despite all this, in the meantime, baby Annette was born, and then another child, John Jr. The family moved from California to Pennsylvania, first for a time in Philadelphia, and then they moved in with one of John's sisters in Masontown, Fayette County. Finally, the family settled in Manesson. It was hard to find any more background on the family. Sometime after the move, John made friends with a man that would forever change their lives, Charles Kolschok. The two men became fast friends. And then at some point, the details are murky, Charles took a very particular interest in John and Annette's daughter, Marcia. He started out by buying Marcia toys, clothes, and taking her shopping. And the family allowed the man and the child and I say child because she was only nine or ten at the time, they allowed them to spend time together. Charles lavished gifts upon the family, even giving them a used car. So the whole thing had the appearance of the family accepting these gifts in exchange for allowing this, quote, friendship between Charles and Marcia. Whether or not the family knew, that relationship developed into a sexual one. Marsha recalls that while at his house, he would make her watch porn and then assault her. But there was one condition to this very odd agreement between Charles and the Bright family. Marsha could never stay at his house, and she always had to be returned. This went on for about three years, and this relationship was very intense. He kept very tight communication with her. He bought her a pager, and they even used walkie-talkies so she could always be in contact with him. So let's just take this in for a minute, and I'll even try to play devil's advocate. You have a family friend 
who is extra close to your daughter. You have other children, but he only directs his attention to one. He gives her lots of things, as well as giving gifts to the family. I mean, would that sit right with you? And did this family truly not suspect anything, or did they just turn a blind eye? The whole arrangement fell apart on March 4, 2000, when Charles didn't return Marcia like they agreed. Instead, he kept her overnight in his truck in the woods. So the next morning, John called the police. Charles was arrested and charged with corrupting a minor, and he received a 23-month prison sentence. But that was reduced down to... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Nine months with time served. He was not to have any contact with Marsha or the family. Of course, that didn't last long. Less than a year later, Charles was spotted at a Greensburg area Target department store with Marsha. It's always referred to as a relationship, but I'm not going to sugarcoat that. This was abuse. He was sexually abusing this child. And apparently, it was once again allowed by the Bright family. Now, there are some allegations that Charles threatened the family, that if he couldn't see Marsha, then he would hurt the family. And this is alleged by John and by Marsha. But at the same time, he took Marsha and her mother on shopping trips, so it's very hard to know what was really going on. I mentioned how Charles and Marsha were seen at the department store together, which was a violation of his parole. However, a probation report wasn't filed until six weeks later, and even then he was only fined. According to one article I read, it took the district attorney weeks to file a petition recommending he be returned to prison. And during this whole time, he was abusing Marsha. But she had had enough with this abuse. She wanted it to end, and she didn't want any more contact with Charles. The immediate Bright family didn't care, but others thought that the whole thing was odd. Neighbors and other members of the Bright family were bothered by his relationship with the girl. Even Charles's brother, Dwayne Kolschak, complained to the Child's Bureau that his brother's contact with Marsha was inappropriate. He questioned the family's participation in allowing her to spend time with his brother. You have to remember, this guy went to prison for abusing her. And then things went from bad to worse. On July 15, 2001, Marsha's 8-year-old sister, Annette, disappeared. 
She left her home on her purple, huffy, six-speed bike, telling her mom, Annette May, that she was going to feed the ducks down by the river. There are also reports that said that she was going to her relative's house a few blocks away. Whatever happened, when John got home from work, she wasn't there, and he and Annette went out to search for her. Around 11 p.m. that night, when she still hadn't returned, her parents notified police, and that prompted an all-night search. The next day, police searched wooded areas, abandoned buildings. Eventually, the FBI was brought into the search. John Bright said to the press, I think she's been kidnapped, and no kidnapper is going to let her live. So many reports came in of people claiming to have seen Annette. One person said they saw her riding her bike. Another claimed to have seen her on the other side of town near a housing complex. A call came in to say she was witnessed putting her bike in a friend's garage. Police went and recovered the bike, but this friend didn't know the whereabouts of Annette, and it's not even clear if this bike was hers. Then her parents told police that she may have run away after they had argued, a fact they hadn't originally added. Annette was last seen wearing pink shorts and a white t-shirt. She was a little tiny thing, only 60 pounds, four feet tall, with brown hair and blue eyes. There's this totally adorable picture you can find of her online. It's so cute. She has messy hair and a sweet little smile. So the community really came together and rallied to help look for the missing girl. And right there, with the search parties, was... Guess who? Charles Kolschak. But police weren't falling for his charade of a concerned family friend. They brought him in for questioning, accusing him of taking Annette. And it didn't take long for him to confess. Deep in the woods off Interstate 70, her body was found. Underneath a pile of dirt and leaves, Manesson Police Chief Gary Treader spied a pair of Pokemon sneakers, and he knew right away that it was Annette. He would see her around town all the time wearing those shoes. She'd laugh when he complimented her on them, and she'd say, You can't get them. Your feet are too big. Charles told authorities that he had taken the girl on a deer hunting trip, even though it wasn't deer hunting season, and accidentally killed her with a shotgun blast to the head. He said the two were sitting in the woods when he suddenly got a leg cramp. And when he moved to relieve the cramp, his 20-gauge shotgun accidentally went off, striking Annette in the face. He said he panicked and he threw dirt over her body to hide it. The 35-year-old was held without bail. Now, the town of Manesson had mixed feelings about the Bright family. While many felt sorry for their loss, most were wondering why they ever allowed this man to have any contact with their daughter. And there was also the fact that Annette had been missing for 12 hours before the Brights contacted police. The mayor was quoted as saying, We need some answers, and we need them now, before more children are failed by the system and more children fall through the cracks. John and Annette also abused money donated to a memorial fund for their daughter, as if this whole thing couldn't get even worse. That money was intended to pay for her funeral expenses, and then anything left over was supposed to go to a music scholarship fund set up in Annette's name. 
Instead, the Brights used the money to buy a used 1988 Buick Century station wagon. Now, John Bright tried to make it all right, saying it was a necessity since they would no longer be able to use the car that Charles gave them. Annette's brother, Donald Simmons, was incredibly angered. He said, They took advantage of the community. She did wrong, 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 wrong. She should have put something into the girl's memory. They are not acting remorseful about the child they lost. John argued that they needed a way to get to Greensburg to see his children where they were being kept. This is because 13-year-old Marcia and 7-year-old John were taken from the home by child services just three weeks after Annette's murder. And then the story takes an even more bizarre turn when police found a secret bunker that Charles kept in the woods. They were tipped off by a friend of his who had been to the bunker previously. That underground, concrete-lined hiding place was near the home of Koschok. Police repeatedly made treks to the woods looking for the bunker before they finally found it. It was very well concealed, Treader said. He really did a hell of a job. They first found a row of blocks that was the edge of the bunker wall, and then they found the outlines of the door in the hillside. So after they made sure it wasn't booby-trapped, they pried open the door to reveal a six-feet-deep crawl space. And then that crawl space led into a chamber that was four feet wide, four feet high, and eight feet long. It had a concrete floor, particle board ceiling, and concrete block walls. There were openings in the wall that led to a terracotta piping, and then that led to the surface, which opened to vents. A green hose that ran from a nearby spring led water to the bunker. There was even a makeshift latrine set up. Old wires left over made authorities think that it may have once been battery-powered with lights. Charles had previously worked as a bricklayer, so this work would have been easy for him. He cleverly disguised the outside door with layers of green carpeting and wire mesh with dirt caked in between. So from the outside, it just looked like a moss-covered rock. Police were hoping to find the shotgun that he allegedly caught up and disposed of after the murder. But they didn't find the gun. They did, however, find evidence of the long-term relationship with Marcia. One such thing was a handwritten letter threatening the girl's family if she ever stopped seeing him. That was in response to a letter she had written him expressing the desire to not see him anymore. You better hope they catch me before I kill you or your family, one letter read. I love you to death and will not let you go. The bunker was demolished after the search was over. Now, there was even more evidence of their forced relationship. And then you can add this to the semen found on Annette's clothing to use against Charles at trial. But what wasn't evident was his motive for killing Annette. I mean, did he make good on his threat to hurt the family? Was it because he was upset over losing Marcia? Days before he was set to go to trial, Charles pleaded guilty to first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In return for the plea, prosecutors agreed to drop a separate sex charge case of rape and other offenses relating to Marcia. Charles claimed he did it to spare Marcia the pain of going through a trial. 
One thing is you'll be happy to hear that Marcia and John were not returned to the bride home. Today, they have changed their names and their whereabouts are unknown. Not long after Annette was found, her mother Annette May filed a restraining order against her husband. She wanted him barred forever from entering their home. In the order, she claimed that John abused her and the children, even once threatening to kill her. After the trial, I can't find any more information. I have no idea what became of John or Annette May. I assume that Charles Koschak is still in prison. Hopefully the children are leading happy lives somewhere. But I'm not exactly an internet sleuth, so I wish I could provide more info for you. If anyone out there does know anything more, please contact me. I would love to have an update which I would gladly pass on. It's just a truly messed up case. And what bothers me is that no one really knows how much the parents knew about what happened to either of their daughters and how complicit they may have been. It's a very gray area. I mean, worst case scenario, they knew everything. Did they also let him take a net that day? Maybe they didn't know anything and they thought this relationship he had with Marsha was innocent, but you know, that's a far stretch. It's just really hard to reconcile the thought of a parent willingly letting their child be abused. I really go back and forth with my opinion on whether they knew or not. What really sticks with me was when Annette was missing those first couple of days, and her father said she was probably kidnapped, and he didn't know if they'd find her alive. That's quite the opposite of what most parents of missing kids say. So that makes me suspicious. I mean, I just, I don't know. That was the murder of Annette Bright. Let me know what you think about the case. Hit me up on social media. Join the Red Room Blonde Facebook group or find me on Instagram or Twitter. I'll let you know as soon as the episode of Mysterious Circumstances that I guested on posts. But in the meantime, check out his other episodes. Also, check out the documentary called I Am Evidence. I just watched it today. It was all about the rape backlog that is a huge problem in almost every city in America. It was really fascinating. The documentary follows a few cases of women who were raped and their fight to get the rape kits tested. If you have any questions of why women don't come forward after being raped, then this will answer all of that for you. Obviously, it's an extremely relevant documentary to watch right now. I think it was produced by Marishka Hargitay. It was so good, but grab your tissue box before you watch it. I wish this wasn't the reality that we're in. Thank you for listening this week. I've finally gotten the newer episodes up on Stitcher, so if you have Stitcher and you like to listen to the podcast there, everything's current. And if you like the podcast, I'd love a review on iTunes or whatever format you listen to the podcast on. Thank you so much for listening and catch you guys next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.